So we're, we, we have finished uh, the first four, four chapters up to 4.12 of what Matthew is instructing us on. He's given us the genealogy of Jesus. He has, he has the right ancestry. We saw the Father's protection of him after he is born, and God is giving direct revelation through an angel to Joseph and Mary. Go here, do this, do that. And he's protecting his son. And all through there, we keep seeing that the Scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, driving us back to the Hebrew Scriptures and saying, this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is Jesus who will save his people from their sins. And if you miss this, what will profit a person if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So Matthew is driving that. He went through then uh, the baptism. Now we have the testimony from heaven, not only a testimony of an, of an angel, but now God the Father says at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son. This is the one. And then at the transfiguration, that same voice says, you better pay attention to him. And so Matthew is not only concerned about his Jewish brethren writing to them, but he is also concerned about Gentiles, about all people, that they would not miss this king. And then we went through uh, the three temptations. We looked at those. Is this man morally qualified? Will he cave in under temptation? For the first time, we have God in the flesh. He's fully man, and he's fully God. And we see what happens. And how does Jesus handle that? He goes back to the Hebrew Scriptures. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And looking at the Lucan account, he also was tempted during that entire 40 days. And we have three summarized at the end. And, and we should not think that, well, Jesus was simply God and there was no effect upon him. That was a piece of cake going through those temptations. No. In his humanity, he was emaciated at the end of that fasting. And we see angels came and ministered to him at the end. And so we come down to 412, the remainder of this introduction, what, what, what is Matthew going to say about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus? And we have that, and I gave you three vignettes. We're just in, in the second one in verse uh, 18, and here we're going to look at the call of the disciples. And so you go, you, you, you think Gary had a big porch this morning during Sunday school. Mine's going to last a couple lessons, but it, it really is the text itself. So I want to pause and recognize who the true teacher is. It's God who sees our hearts. He sees my heart. He knows where I need to continue to grow in grace, and he knows your heart as well. Lord God, we look to heaven above. We thank you. You have not left us without revelation. We thank you for what Paul said to Timothy. 
You've known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who does not have faith and trust in Christ Jesus, may they see that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. And we thank you, you have not only given us, making us wise for salvation, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, Anthropos, the person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sometimes you need to rebuke us through Scripture. Sometimes you correct us, but you're always training us. Thank you. For all your true children, you discipline us, you teach us, you train us. So, Lord, as we come before the text of the Word of God this morning, may it be true of us of what you said in Isaiah. This is the one. This is the one I look at, I regard, I esteem, I value in a particular way. The person who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Make us that kind of people, O Lord. Only you can do that and do it for your glory. We pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. I'm rehearsing back to 4.12 again. And the way Matthew begins here is now when he heard that John had been arrested. Now, sometimes Matthew may be topical, but in general, he's following a chronological pattern. So John has been arrested. He's in prison. John will never get out of prison. As a matter of fact, he will die in prison. He will lose his head in prison and beheaded. So now we read the text, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Well, where was he at? He was down there at the temptation account, down there with uh, John the baptizer. He's down there. So he comes up from Judea, and he comes to uh, Nazareth. And then what Matthew summarizes for us, he leaves Nazareth, and he goes to Capernaum by the sea. So, um, here in the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, John is in prison. He withdraws from Judea. Remember, that this is, this is the heart center of the nation down there in Jerusalem and Judea. This is where the religious leaders, this is where the temple is. And, but his hometown is Nazareth, is Nazareth. Now... Um, so we go from, from Judea down here, and he's going to be alongside the Jordan. He travels back up to Judea. Here is Nazareth, a little uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, and then he's going to go to Capernaum up there right on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and, and if you go to Nazareth today, here's probably what you're going to see. This is Nazareth, downtown aerial from 
the north, you're going to see the Church of the Annunciation. Annunciation, you're going to go in there and you, you, you know, wherever there is a holy site, they usually build a church or put something there, and uh, it, it's it's highly populated. Um, today, Nazareth is home to more than sixty thousand Israeli Arabs. Um, Upper Nazareth is home to thousands of Jewish residents, but really the Tel Nazareth, the little place where probably this is where Jesus was, uh, that the original town estimates that it probably wasn't more than 200 people. It's, it's like a little backwater town uh, up there. Um, you know, when uh, many of you know, I was raised in a single-parent home. Mom became a, a believer, and uh, so she had two boys. And you know what boys like to do? They like to stick their foot over the line. You know, here's the boundary line, and how far can I put my foot over the line without getting whacked? So she sent me back to Maryland during the summers for my uncle to do the whacking a lot of time. And uh, <laughs> the, the name of the town was Accident. Accident, Maryland. Anybody ever been to Accident, Maryland? Um, I, I, I asked uh, my uncle, I, I don't know if this is a legend or it actually happened this way. I go, how did Accident, Maryland get named Accident? He goes, well, there were two surveyors coming through, and they met by accident, and they established the town. Now, I, I, I've never seen that verified, but uh, the town was about 300 people. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business, sometimes not always in a good way. So think about this. Nazareth, 200 people, and Jesus is, is growing up there, and he's the carpenter's son. And so everybody in the town is, is going to, uh, to know him. And uh, so he, he comes back from Judea, goes up to Nazareth, and remember what happened. Now, this is the cliff outside of Nazareth that many of us have, some of us have, have been there and stood on at several hundred feet down. Remember, he went, he went in the synagogue up there, and he reads the scroll, and he opens it, and he says, uh, today, uh, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. And he starts talking about Naaman the Syrian and the widow up there and Gentiles being included. And they're so angry, they drive him out of the synagogue and they take him up over this cliff and they're going to throw him over the cliff. <laughs> it's, you can't read this text without recognizing God at this point, in providential control, he just passes through their midst. You ever try to go through an angry mob and they're just going to let you right through? You see the hand of God here. So this is right here when you read in Matthew 4, 12, and uh, he withdrew into Galilee, he went into Nazareth. This is going to happen right before we're, we're coming down and he's living in uh Nazareth. And he's going to come down to Capernaum. We talked about that a little bit last week, uh, right there by the sea. One of the main sites there is that largest synagogue, ancient synagogue. Now, this is one from the first century, but when you go there, you look at the basalt. Um, 
I know you can't see my finger pointing. I have to be a little more high techy there, Dylan, and point. Where's my arrow? Here we go. Down here, there's basalt stones there from the from the first uh, a century. Um, so he went down to Capernaum, Kafir Nahum, the village of Nahum, and William Barclay uh, has done a lot of uh, historical work. He claims that in the days of Jesus, around the Sea of Galilee, there were nine different townships around the lake, and even the smallest one had at least 15,000 people. Now, you imagine going from 200 to 15,000 people. So, you know, I'd go back to Chicago, and nobody talks to each anybody else except, you know, you're going down the street. Unless you work with them or you know them, you're, you're walking down, and nobody goes, hi, hey, how, you know, they, they think you're a wacko to, to do that going down the street. Nazareth, totally different. So why, why did Jesus come down there? Well, he was rejected at Nazareth, but we also read in the text this is fulfillment of Scripture. Don't miss this. And so it quotes the pattern there in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. He's come. He has come. People are in darkness. They need light. He's the light. He's the light. And if you miss Jesus says the light, you're going to stay in darkness. And what, what does he preach? Notice before we read about his healing, we read about his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that John had preached. It's the same message that you find in the Old Testament. It's the same message ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. Repent, turn from your sin. Faith and repentance are hand in glove. You can't separate them. True faith, trust in Jesus, is also true repentance. And then we read, and Jesus calls the first disciples. Now, it, 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 at first glance, you read this, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, these two brothers, Simon and, and Andrew, and says, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and follow him. Now, if you don't read the other Gospels, it will look like, wow, did they ever meet him before? Jesus comes along and all of a sudden they just get up and no questions and don't know who he is. And the same thing with James and the son of Zebedee and, and John, his, his, his brother. I skip little comments on Capernaum. There's, there's the shoreline. Uh, there's the... Sea of Galilee. This is this is we call it a sea. The Lassen, uh is used of a, a body of water, but for us, a sea. It's it's really a lake. It, it's fresh water, and one of the great delights is is to get on and go out there on on a boat uh, when you're on a trip there on on the little boats and go out there on the uh, Sea of Galilee. Now it's a little commercialized. I doubt they were in the first century flying an American flag, and, you know, and they'll turn on audio of God Bless America and those types of things as you're out there. But um, I look at my fellow travelers when we're out there, and I see some of them cry. And I know why. Because the historical reality 
is being impressed upon them of, of this is where so much took place of Jesus' miracles. Jesus walked on water on this lake. Um, and uh, they even have a Jesus boat. Now, it, it's just named that, but when you go there, it's uh, um, there were um, a couple of brothers from one of the uh, kibbutzim, and they were the Sea of Galilee had a drought, and the water had receded, and they're walking along the shoreline, and, and they saw what seemed to be remains of a boat, and uh, they contacted down there at Jerusalem, and they came up and said, wow, and they examined it and go, this, this is a boat from the first century. It's, it's about, uh, um, well, let me put, and this is in a museum. It, it's just fantastic to, if you like trivia, you know. I got to get off my porch here. I'm working on it. Um, but how they, how they brought this thing out without destroying it and how they coated it and put it in this museum. So you come in, you see this little film on it. But, but here it is. It's a first century Galilean boat, not necessarily Jesus was on it, but it's 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. And it gives us, it, it gives us some type of idea of what it was like for these, for these fishermen and uh, what, what we'll be looking at in the accounts that, that follow. And so Jesus comes along the Sea of Galilee and, and he sees two casting a net in the sea. And I take it this is off of their their boats, and then he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat. And uh, so it, it would appear just, boom, what Matthew wants to emphasize to us, he's not saying that they never met him before. What Matthew is emphasizing, when Jesus calls you, you don't say, remember all the excuses later on, oh, I got to go bury my father, and I got to do this thing. And what Matthew is emphasizing here in his account, no, you get up, you respond, the right response is to follow him. You don't have a bunch of excuses. So, I want to talk about four stages of the training of the 12 and kind of follow this through historically and what does this teach us today as disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember, you remember what a disciple is? Uh, uh, mathetes in Greek comes from mathano to learn. Uh, my Latin students, a, a discipulus, is a learner, is a student. And particularly in, in John, sometimes uh, disciples are learners, but they're not those who have true faith and trust in him. Remember that account. And so when Jesus gave some hard sayings about uh, the bread of life, some turned back from following him. The disciples didn't. He turned to Peter. Are you going to go away true to Peter? You remember what Peter said? You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? So Jesus is going to call four disciples to him. Now, this also, because I'm going to do some parallels in the Gospels, let me talk about uh, the synoptics and the harmony of the Gospels along with John. You go, well, what's a harmony? Um, it, all, it all goes together. We were at uh, the 
Sherman Symphony last night, and they were playing some Dvorak pieces. That was absolutely beautiful. Um, so a harmony of the Gospels, how does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fit together? Do they have uh, conflict? One has said the four New Testament Gospels are like the singers in a four-part choir. They each have their distinct parts to sing, yet the parts combine to make a beautiful composition. And each of the four Gospels gives a testimony of Jesus from a slightly different perspective, but they all tell the same story. Thus, they're in harmony with one another. Um, and those harmonies of the Gospels, they try and align things chronologically. Now, you'll just, you, I'll be honest with you, when I went to seminary, um, I didn't know too much. I came out probably thinking I knew more than I actually knew. But I remember the first, the first class was a Life of Christ class. And uh, Professor French, he gave us an exam. And it was on the Life of Christ, details, chronology, places. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, man, I'm in trouble. I'm never going to pass this class. I got an 18 and I'm used to getting high grades, and I got an 18. I go, man, nobody warned me I was going to have to do this. And then he goes, well, cheer up. He says, um, I'm not taking this as a grade now. He said, but I'm going to give you the same exam at the end of the semester, and you better have learned something. <laughs> so it kind of motivated me uh, to learn something. So in, in this harmony of the Gospels, when we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, is writing later. My view is that John does know about the Synoptic Gospels, and he is intentionally augmenting the material in there. So, you know, we had I had to cut my teeth on A.T. Robertson, A Harmony of the Gospels. There's if, if you want to read a good harmony of the Gospels that's recent, it's called One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. It's just superb. But you'll look at them. They all differ maybe a little bit. It is, am I fitting this right together uh, as, as well? Some consider that you can't harmonize them. It's called unbelief. It's a low view of Scripture. It's a rejection of this book as God-breathed Scripture. It's man's elevation of his own mind over Scripture. It's arrogance, pride, rules out any possible uh, harmonization. And you know why? Because it's a reason I can reject this book and I can justify my sin before God. I don't have to believe this book. There's, there's no future, future judgment. The Scottish theologian and minister in... Uh, uh, 1800s, A.B. Bruce, in his classic work, The Training of the Twelve, titled How Jesus Christ Found and Taught the Twelve Apostles, has various stages in the calling and training of the twelve. I'm just putting down uh, four. He writes, The founder of our faith desired to not only have disciples, but to have disciples about him whom he might train to make disciples of others to cast the net of divine truth into the sea of the world and to land on the shores of the divine kingdom a great multitude of believing souls. He writes, The humble fishermen of Galilee had much to learn, and three years with their master seemed all too short. 
Uh, at the time of their call, they were, and you may think this is a little harsh, but let me explain. He says, at the time of their call, they were exceedingly ignorant, not, not ignorant of intellectual truth, but a lot of ignorant of spiritual truth. Narrow-minded, superstitious, full of Jewish prejudices, misconceptions, and animosities. They had much to unlearn of what was bad as well as much to learn of what was good. And they were slow both to learn and to unlearn. Just read through the Gospels. Old beliefs already in possession of their minds made the communication of new religious ideas a difficult task. The mirrors must be finally polished that are designed to reflect the image of Christ, and that has total bearing on every disciple of Jesus Christ. We, we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and progressive sanctification is going to occur the rest of your lifetime until you get to heaven. And sometimes it, it's, it's whoop, up, but progressive sanctification should be this way. The perfect man who is our model to follow is not Paul, it's not anybody else, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're seeking to be conformed to his image. And that's what, I mean, really? Would, would the Lord make a mistake? Did he really pick these guys? Are they going to be the ones who are going to turn the world upside down? And, and, and you look at them. What are they arguing about? Jesus just told them he's going to go down to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and they come up and go, oh, uh, who gets the place right hand to Jesus? <laughs> and the other ten are ticked off that they didn't, you know, it, the, ver ver the verb in Greek is very hot. They were hot to hear, who do you think you are? And so what does Jesus tell them? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you want to be great in the kingdom? Here's what you got to do. You have to be a diakonos, a servant of all. And then he expands on that. He uses another term, the doulos, the slave of all. You want to be great in the kingdom? Put yourself underneath people. Where did Paul learn esteem, value others as more important than yourself? Does that come natural to you? doesn't come natural to me. Uh, it's, 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 it's grace. It's God at work in, in our hearts. And so we're going to find that here in these fishermen. Uh, turn over to Mark. i got six minutes. Whoa. Okay. Um, uh, Mark chapter... Uh, Three and verse thirteen. So this is this is going to be down here at the fourth stage, the appointment of the twelve. So I'm fast forwarding, and then we're going to look, get at least a little bit on John chapter chapter one. But here it says, and he went up on the mountain. And Luke said, you know what he did all night before he chose the twelve? He prayed all night long. Wow. Now, I didn't say he always did that, but here's a crucial. Here's a crucial decision he needs to make. And, and, and God, full humanity, full de deity. So he goes up on the mountain and he called to him, what does it say? Those who volunteered, those whom he wanted, whom 
he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And what's the first thing that he called them for? Look at it. They might be what? With him. They're going to follow Jesus around for about three years, and they're going to see in the context of life, Jesus is going to train them. What, what, why do we have what's called the Lord's Prayer? It's really the prayer for the disciples, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, sanctify, set apart, be, be your name. You know, you know, it says they watched Jesus pray, and they said, would you teach us to pray like that? So they're following around. He, he's training them. So they're going to be with him, and he might send them out to do what's the primary thing? Proclaim. Proclaim the same message that he is proclaiming. Repent and believe the gospel. And then to have authority to cast out demons. And, and look at some of these names. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, Peter is just the Greek form for Cephas or Cephas, the Aramaic word, which means rock. At this point, how much of a rock does Peter seem to be? There needs to be, <laughs> there needs to be some growth. He, he's a leader, yes, but um, come here, Lord. You're not going down to Jerusalem. You got Peter here. You go, Peter needs to uh, learn a few things too. And, he, and then... James, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom, um, the sons of thunder. The, the James and John we're seeing over here, those fishermen. Why did he call them sons of thunder? Do, do you remember some accounts in there? He says, hey, Lord, you see those two people over there? You want us to call fire down from heaven and burn them up? Just think about it. James, Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, what did he do to James? He executed him. And what happened to John, the other son of thunder? The beloved apostle. There's a lot of transformation that takes place, and God is sovereign over the time of the day of our birth and the day of our death. But while we're here as believers, he is changing us. He's changing us, and that's what we're going to learn here. And then Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot. Oh, we come to the last one. Did he make a mistake? Judas Iscariot, probably from the from a, a town that is, that's where the name Iscariot comes from. He's the only non-Galilean among the 12. And we'll see later on that he chose him in the fulfillment of Scripture. Who betrayed him. So there's sovereignty, and you know, Judas doesn't get a pass. You don't get to say, well, um, I was chosen to do this. No, you are fully responsible for your sin. You can't blame God. You can't turn to him and say, um, you know, you made me do this. No, you're responsible for your sin. So um, flip back then. No, flip to John chapter 1, and, and I'll go as far as I can here in a few minutes. So we're, we're looking at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, 
When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So, now we're going to go back before John the baptizer is arrested, and that's what John is going to fill in some of the details. So we go to John chapter 1 and verse 35. And I would call this first stage here the, the come and see stage. Um, the disciples are here on record just getting acquainted with, with John. Now there's a sequence here. Look at verse 29. The next day, verse 35. The next day, verse 43. The next day, and then the wedding of Cana at Galilee, on the third day. In other words, all of this tight sequence gives the indication that the writer here was present, and he's given us a vivid account. That's why uh, many, myself included, do consider that the beloved, the, that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John himself. So we're going to pick up here... Um, in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Oh, stop. Let that sink in. This is John the baptizer standing with two of his disciples. So who are two of his disciples? Well, if you look down in verse 40, one of them is Andrew. And I take it that the tradition that the other one is the author of this gospel, John the Apostle, I, I think is, is correct. So John, the baptizer, is standing with two of his disciples. Now, if you were a disciple of, of John at this time, what would have made you a disciple of John? What did John preach? Repent of your sin, and get ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get prepared for the king and the kingdom. So if there are disciples of him, I take it it's implied here, they came to John. They repented of their sin. There's repentance. There's, there's faith. And John baptized them. I, I think that that's two of his disciples. You wouldn't be his disciples if that had not taken place. So, so sometimes I, I kind of scratch my head and I go, you know, when, when did these disciples actually become what we would call regenerate? When, when did they become true believers? When were they transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son? I was delighted one time, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Don Carson and you know, um, he, he's, not, he's a dinosaur. I, I say that affectionately. He doesn't come in and pat you on the back. He challenges us. He goes, you, you guys are doctoral students? What's your problem? What's your problem, you know? And the next time, he's crying in tears over, over his, his training. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. My dad was a pastor. I knew the truth. And then I went to the university and things seemed to kick in 
at that time in a way they had never kicked in before. And so then I went to seminary, et cetera, and the, the whole story, and he goes, and I wonder, I'm not really sure, when did I actually become a true believer? Was it as a child? Was it later on? And he goes, when I get to heaven, I'd like to ask God, but I already know his answer. You know what his answer is? Before the foundation of the world, I called you. <laughs> so sometimes we may not, for, for me, I'm, I'm crystal clear of when I became a believer. Some maybe not. The important thing is, have you trusted this, this Messiah? Is your trust in him? Examine your heart right now. Who are you trusting? Who are you trusting? Do you have any merit of your own to get you in heaven? Or have you turned to the merit of this person and him alone? So, what's John do? Behold the Lamb of God. What's he do? He points his disciples to Jesus, not to himself. Um, dos minutos mas, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. Um, John practices what he preaches. He's not a male making disciples for himself, but disciples who follow God. And so he points them to Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sin. The centerpiece of John's gospel is the identity of Jesus. Who Jesus is lies at the heart of this gospel. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Word became flesh. He is the I Am. He's God's unique Son who came down from heaven. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He sets men and women free from the slavery to sin. He is the great shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Now, i got to stop there, but I do want to read from uh, an excellent little book. Jerry just finished reading it, and it, calls, it, it says, It'll cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. What it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey that comes at a high price. This is not a relationship to be entered into lightly. The decision requires the commitment of your entire life to him. Coming to Christ demands highest priority over every other aspect of your life. It necessitates the submission of your will to his lordship. This path requires your sacrifice and even your willingness to suffer him. To be sure, Jesus will not follow you. You are called to follow him. Following Christ will cost you much. It will cost you your old way of life and forfeiting your past sins. It will cost you a life of ease and living for this world. It will cost you old habits and old associations. It will cost you following your own agenda for your life. It will cost you time and treasure. It will cost you suffering for being identified with him. It will cost you opposition and persecution from the world. It may even cost you your own life, but in the end you gain far more than you ever lose. And that's a process of, of realizing this. And part of that that's helpful to that is what we're going to do this morning at the Lord's table. And right before we partake of the Lord's table, um, Paul's going to come lead us on a hymn. It's, it's, it's an old hymn that says, Jesus calls us. Ed, pay attention to the words as you sing this, Jesus calls us. <laughs> 